Okay, I think we're going to get started for this evening. Um, hello, I'm Kathleen Neal, and I'm happy to welcome you tonight to our Poetry and Conversation program. And we're very happy that you joined us tonight for Mary Azrael and Kendra Kopelke, and hope you will join us tomorrow night as well for a special celebration of the life and work of the legendary Lucille Clifton, featuring Nikki Giovanni, um, Alpha Michael Weaver, and many other wonderful poets. That's tomorrow night, 6.30. Um, that might be up in, our, in the third floor in Wheeler, I believe. Um, but it's, it's tomorrow evening. And also later in the summer, um, on August 8th, we'll be hosting a stage and page event with performance poets Linda Joy Burke and Michelle Antoinette Nelson, which will include a discussion of the difference, differences and commonalities between poems made for the page and poems performed on the stage. But now for tonight, which is very exciting. First, we're going to introduce both poets, then Mary and Kendra will each read, followed by a Q&A with the poets. Mary and Kendra will then introduce an open mic session with several passenger poets or other poets that are here tonight and would like to read a poem. And then we will close with a short reading by Mary and Kendra. Now for an introduction. While Mary is the author of three books of poems, Victorians, Riddles for a Naked Sailor, and Black Windows, she has also composed two opera librettos, one for lost childhood inspired by the life of Holocaust survivor Yehuda Nir, and another for an award-winning choral work on paper bridges from a Yiddish legend. Her poems have also been set to music, and she has written a sound poem for a kinetic sculpture by artist Kevin Labadi. Mary currently teaches poetry in the Odyssey program at Johns Hopkins University, Homewood Campus. Kendra is the author of four books of poems, Eager Street, Carpe Diem, Ants, and was one of three writers featured in the collection When Divas Dance. Her most recent work is Hopper's Women, based on the paintings of Edward Hopper. She directs the MFA in Creative Writing and Publishing Arts at the University of Baltimore. Together, Kendra and Mary are co-editors of Passager Journal, now in its 22nd year, and Passager Books, a press dedicated to older writers. They have published books by individual authors and co-edited two, co two anthologies, Keeping Time, 150 Years of Journal Writing, and Burning Bright, Passager Celebrates 21 Years. In this endeavor, their common love of the art of bookmaking is beautifully realized, as each book in design, color, shape, and even texture is a work of art unto itself. A diversity of inspirations is evident in both Mary's and Kendra's work, ranging from music, art, history, and, of course, other poets. Surprising us, as in Mary's poem, Cloud Blog, envisioning a cloud as a toad, wandering lonely reflecting the eternal transmuting nature of objects, images, and life, or startling us when Kendra turns a hopper woman to face the viewer and explain her artistic purpose, according to him, as a candle to ignite the room or a mirror in a funhouse. Both poets jolt the reader with surprising and inventive imagery to describe the outer world in order to give voice to the more elusive and mysterious interior, interior landscape. And as many grateful students and poets can attest to, through their inspired teaching and dedicated efforts with Passager, Mary and Kendra have fostered the voices of many, giving us the rich collections of varied histories and experiences that can be found in Passager and in their classrooms. Please join me in welcoming Mary and Kendra. Thank you, Kathleen. What a wonderful introduction. And you gave, you gave me an idea about what to read first, because you <laughs> actually, well, it's, it's really nice to see everybody. And I do see some people who were in the workshops um, in the Odyssey program, that I, some good friends that became good friends that way, and I got to hear their poems when they were new, when they were new poets and shy about reading. And um, 
I feel a little like that right now. Um, <laughs> anyway, it seems like I have. A, it seems like a t- the toad is my muse, um, I, and you can't really choose your muse, but that seems to be the way it is. And so this poem, I'm going to read another toad poem. Um, called What Is My Business Anyway? Uh, I was looking out into the dark one night and I saw in the floodlight an incredible, big, beautiful toad. And I wanted so much to bring that toad into to life in a poem, but you'll see what happened. I gave up. What is my business anyway? Sumo wrestler arms around the low-hung full moon of your own belly, squatting, not to be moved. Bulldog, dragged down by heavy jowls, benign. Dinosaur, crouched, elbows squared. What time is it? What size are you? Naming and naming? Am I getting closer? Midnight on the floodlight porch, you are light brown with black ragged bands and mottled rings. A large moth, tree fungus, clot of dead leaves, But what about your toad life? What do you have against being a toad? Now a rhinoceros, now a rubber puddle of trick vomit? But forgive me, truly, toad, your Buddha shape recalls the barefoot monk, toad on his head, fishing rod, happy on the way. Why can't I be like him, like you? Look at you, lying down like a cow before it rains. Or, Lord, a giant tortoise. Why do you insist on being a baby eagle fallen from the nest unfledged? Go, jump into your shadow like a cricket into a shoe. Sing there in the dark. I won't look. The color of your tongue is none of my business. (laughs) Okay. Um, This next poem is an obad, which is a a poem to greet the dawn, or a poem of lovers parting at dawn. And um, hmm. sometimes there's a feeling that time has just gone by too fast. And um, in this poem, the lovers are old, so there's even more that feeling that time has gone by too fast. That's a cliche, and it's true. The time just goes faster and faster the older you get. So, And this was set on the shortest night of the year, which is coming up, June 22nd. Obad. One thirsty June night, old woman, old man, rolling over under each other, crawling in and out of each other, drinking each other, salty, sweet, Whose legs, whose arms, whose squeals, yodels, growls, roars, whose belly making that hungry noise? Hello, goodbye, oh, goodbye, so soon. Long ago, in a drowse, hungry baby, she was, he was, sucked milk and never dreamed. One June morning, suddenly, here we'd be, old woman, old man, wild awake, dazzled on a doorstep, the dark at our backs, holding each other. Hello. Goodbye. Oh, goodbye. So soon. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) From there to Mary Poppins. (laughs) Um, Now, actually, there's a chapter in Mary Poppins, in one of the Mary Poppins books, and I think it's called The Nursery or The Starling or something. But there's a starling on the windowsill of the nursery, and it's singing. And there's a newborn baby in the crib vocalizing. And it's a conversation that none of the older children or the adults can understand. Um, and this poem comes from the time when my grandson, who's now 15, was at that stage of vocalizing and making all these sounds. And it was kind of like music before meaning. Um, 
which is maybe the universal language. Calling. It's like a sunrise. We don't dare blink or look away. We don't want to miss an instant. The subtlest shift. Holy mackerel. Uh. <laughs> Whoa, that was the tuba. <laughs> How, shall I start over, perhaps? Thank you. Oh, uh-oh, okay, I'll, I'll hurry. Okay, well, anyway. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, all the grown-ups were, sitting, were standing around watching this baby and listening. It's like a sunrise. We don't dare blink or look away. We don't want to miss an instant. The subtlest shifts as his eyebrows lift, his mouth slips through every known expression, returning often to the soft, open pucker, the willing, dreamy motion he learned on his mother. His father said, says, he's finding his voice. We all stop breathing. The baby is taking deeper breaths, wheedling, amazed, soulful, gleeful, trying the tones of every language before fate decides which one he will live in. He tries goulash, it's big new, and blee, oublier. He tries humble and appy and im. He says gyow, like a seabird, and oh, like a morning dove, and mutters echad, like a rabbi. His vowels are musical, his consonants juicy, Buh, puh, muh, bright with bubbles and drool. He wears a look we cherish and believe in, of serious intelligence, of modest brilliance, as he begins to sort through this elaborate human thing we do, all our lives, together, alone, to accompany the hidden voice. Should I read one more? Or? Yeah, okay. Um, well, okay. Here, This is a poem about um, my trying to get to know a bird. I was at a party, and I didn't know anybody, and um, I don't do well at those kind of parties. Um, but there was this cockatiel in a cage um, who was talking, and... <laughs> Uh, until I walked over to try to make conversation. So, anyway. Um, so you can see, I struggled through a lot of projection, and then finally, at the last minute, there was some flash of something of the bird. Beside the cockatiel's cage. She doesn't sing or speak. The only sound is a dull pluck, pluck, of claws and beak at the wires, white as the virgin's dove, a round red spot on each cheek. She watches me with the dead shrewd eye of a clown, first one eye, then the other, a look that penetrates, makes me feel judged. She's deciding if I'm worth showing off for. I'm looking for words for those red circles, flat and silly as an old woman's rouge. And that my preoccupation swallows the cockatiel, who disappears and becomes a sailor. Hard eyes, hard laughter, he lives at the extremes, the highs and lows, unsteady at their mercy, repeating himself or the habit of himself, garbled, urgent as radio static. Even on land, his stance is precarious. <laughs> Let the ground be firm, he'll find his own staggering storm. He does whatever it takes to make the concrete shift and crack, distorts the world to make it fit. And there I am again, caught in a cage of mirror and metaphor, narrow and tense, beside the point. His name is Larry, the owner tells me, and Larry can say, get lost, and hey, big boy. <laughs> <laughs> She preens and flashes a lump of great gray tongue, then slips me a whistled phrase, sidelong, subtle, each repetition glowing brighter than the last. And what she is takes place inside my chest, 
a light heart, the clarity of being, what is given. And that's, that's, that's that. wonderful Mary Mary and I have known each other um, long time 20 plus years first time I heard Mary read those poems went right in and they never left and it's like you know some people just have you just hear them and you become part of those poems and it was really um, I learned a lot about poetry from Mary listening to her so, and um, you guys are a very cool audience. You don't know it yet, but you're such an interesting mix of people because I'm seeing different people that I haven't seen in many years. My old neighbor is here. And it's so wonderful to see people that are not in a community of sorts but are just all here to make a community. I love that. And I'm now very nervous about this guy who's about to shout over the um, <laughs> intercom. He, he's going to, it's 6.51. Okay. All right. I, um, no what? There's no <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm going to read really loud like you did. I love that. When the cockatiel just said, get lost, baby. <laughs> um, the um, first couple of poems I'm going to write or, uh, read to you are poems that I... Um, I have a place where I write, and it's not my house. I go to a studio. It's about five minutes from my house, and I go there very early in the morning. Something I always wish to do. I read somebody had a studio years ago, and I had it sort of planted a seed in me that um, somehow I wanted my own space. And so I go there early, and I don't talk to anybody, and I don't turn the radio on. I have no information from the world. I try to arrive there as purely as I can, and I love, I so much love waking up inside of my own imagination and a poem. Um, and so um, sometimes, I'm, sometimes I write when the sun's coming up and sometimes I don't make it, depending on the year. But um, the, the, these, these poems I want to read you are this, um, I'm trying to learn a way of writing. And it's a way of writing that's completely um, in the moment and of the moment. And, and in that sense, very subject-less. I don't go to write about something. I really wanted to give that up. I wanted to be um, as innocent and awake, awake as I could be and let the poem really tell me uh, what it wanted to write. And so that's been um, both liberating and interesting to discover my own imagination in context of um, oftentimes I'm sitting in a chair, I'm just looking out the window. That's what I do. And I write what comes to me. So the first couple of poems are poems I, t I wrote in five minutes each. So it's a little bit about time. And I know that guy is about to say something. <laughs> and when he says something, I'm going to get really mad and read it in a really mad way. I'm already planning that. <laughs> so I don't want to scare you. In five minutes, this poem will be finished. You can sustain almost anything for five minutes, except your breath, or a headstand, or hanging on a ledge, high above the traffic, or swimming underwater in a cold ocean among the rocks and kelp, all of which took three minutes, with two minutes left to go. Two minutes to finish this poem that is now mostly over, so I better put a pearly white moon in it the one that startles you in its white coat. I mean, coat of fur, like a white horse glimpsed on an open field and a bird singing. If I have a second left, I can set one on a dark branch to make anything that has gone wrong right. Two. This seven-minute poem might suffer, trying to be like its five-minute cousin with two extra minutes to figure out. It might have to think about the dry yellow roses on the windowsill making vowel sounds with their stiff, petally mouths. Beside them, the small white stones sleep like dogs. 
These two extra minutes have the luxury of listening to the wind in the trees, their orange and gold leaves, all ears, the thrill of cold air coming from the north. With just two more minutes, I don't have time to learn Spanish, to give what I am feeling some fire. The Spanish poets pour them to have such passion within proximity, in the mouth, to not be able to distinguish words from music. This poem um, I wrote a year ago on the same day, today. And my, my father had recently died. He died in May, the end of May. Sunday. This morning at 8.30, a pair of white butterflies were perusing my front garden, which is a thick and mesmerizing green. And I almost kept going, forgetting to allow myself the pleasure of their good company. Unlike me, they have no choice but to travel light for the ground they must cover in a moment's time. Hello, I said in my best butterfly imitation. Just close enough, I hoped, to earn me a place in their theater. I'm here for the audition, knowing that they knew I was an imposter. Against the brick exterior of my house, their wings could not have seemed any softer or more bright. I felt my heart lift inside their music. The Vinca vines were wild about them as they tacked artfully through the packed-in leaves without touching, the pair of them tuned to one another like two strings of a guitar. I hadn't a clue where they came from, but it was beginning to make some sense their way of appearing out of the morning summer hat, homeless but for the shelter of their own flight. I can't express a sensation watching them. The more I stared or gazed, the more it came to me, this unbeing and flying without a life or a name, to let it all go. That's part of what's so interesting. It goes. You can't stand at the edge of a burgeoning garden too long without bowing to the strangeness of your own separate being. The butterflies, long gone, go around unlocking all the doors. Without touching, I enter the infinite universe where my father is staying and these messenger butterflies and this vast and quivering plain. All right. Um, you know, um, there are a lot of things that I would do differently now that I've been teaching a long time. One of the things I used to do was tell my students what not to write about, which I will never do. I, I, I heard that from someone, and I'm very sorry I adopted it. But one of the things I'm sure I said back then was don't write about butterflies. And boy, was I going to write about butterflies. I'm writing about everything now. And I will never do that to myself again. And I don't want any of you to do that to yourself. This is another seeing poem. Out of the dimness, the red brick of the houses, hearts beating, I look through my living room window. Where can I look? What beauty can I find on my street? The crows fly overhead on its morning bus route, pumping their wet, its wet wings. The stripped-down trees, dark windows, gray sky, unplugged, I have to find a view. That's one thing about me, my eyes, impatient, starved, after a lifetime of so little seeing. My eyes, making up for lost time. My eyes, restless for appearances, the first encounter with the world. My eyes don't belong here. I am the witch in my own neighborhood. I feel the unhappiness that grew up in the 50s, drugged out ghosts, a certain lack of imagination, possibility. The houses look bored, almost deranged. Can that be? My mother wouldn't be proud. She thinks it's all so beautiful on my street, the little hill you drive up, but she would express that seeing no matter what. Hallelujah, say it three times. The bare Japanese maple in my front yard is my therapist. She opens her many arms to me. 
forgives me for not being my mother's daughter and not being Elizabeth Bishop. If I could describe her branches, especially this morning after a big rain, her sleeping curves, her earthbound stillness, her muscle and sinew, thicks and thins, it would get me over this hurdle. I don't deserve her. I know that. But I wonder, the things of this world, how can they bear us? Seven o'clock. He's gonna, is he, I'm going to read some more. Is it okay? Or, I have, oh, we're on a schedule. Can I read a couple more? Okay, I'll read them. Do you mind if I read a couple more? I just wanted to read a couple that I hadn't um, read because that I didn't know how they would be in this place, in this room with you listening. Um, I wonder what I should do. I'll read... um, I want to read a couple of poems about my mother um, because my mother's been ill for close to three and a half years with um, cancer. And uh, it was stage four cancer, and she has survived three and a half years after the doctor told her to basically pack it in. Um, She's responded really well to treatment. Don't ever let anyone take your hope away. (laughs) Don't ever let anyone do that to you. She has been marvelous, marvelous. Um, And uh, recently, she has developed uh, dementia, which has been a shocking and disturbing turn that this... um, part of the end of her life has taken. So I haven't written about it, and I thought I want, I wasn't, you know, I'm always just looking out my window, but I have to write about this. I have to understand, it's my only way of understanding anything is through writing. It's the only way I understand anything. It's the only way I want to understand anything is by writing about it. So um, I, so this character uh, started um, coming through me, and by the way, even saying the word dementia, saying it out loud seemed uh, new to me and was foreign, and I, I couldn't, it doesn't mean anything, uh, it means nothing, it's nothing compares to going through it, that word, so I'm trying to get comfortable with the language as well as the experience. My mother lives in Baltimore, by the way, I see her all the time, and she's a very dear, very dear and very beautiful woman. My demented mother It's coming more easily, a shorthand title for her new book of living. She carries her Martha Stewart magazine to the doctors, the summer issue, a strawberry shortcake bright as a moon on the cover, and holds it up to the nurse who squeals with sugary delight. What happened to the cancer that spread to her liver? Oh, that, that's not a talker. That's a doer, hidden in the bone and lungs. That's behind-the-scenes support staff till... till the show is live. You can see it in her cautious steps, her diminished appetite, skinny body. But dementia, well, you best put on your protective gear. Dementia is a weather system with us standing alert, braced for the sudden storms. It's all sudden. How can that be? Our equipment is hardly up to date. Dementia, queen of the night, we bend to your indecent will. Dementia, the devil screams, you bastards, and raises a fist in front of my face. Dementia storms up the stairs. Who stole my rings? I put them right here. Did you give them to your lover? Can you even, can't you even wait till I'm dead? Dementia insists her husband wants her dead. He can't wait for her to die, wants to get on, get on, get on to the women who are waiting desperately for him. My husband is holding me captive, she tells her brother who calls the police. Dementia wants the keys, the phone, the hearing aids. She is busy adding up, putting the puzzle pieces together, figuring out who is involved. She will make a run for it, and she is as fast as a cat. She tells the neighbors, he's abusing me. Meanwhile, her husband sobs in the driveway or drinks and falls over or shouts at us. Dementia in a blaze sees only herself in us. Why are you doing this to me, she says again and again. Startled, my mother jumps easily. A pot in the sink, a knife falls, a cabinet door shuts. Jump, jump, be quiet, everyone. I hold my breath. I remain calm. Dementia's face appears, not my mother's face, a serious face, a scowl, a black flame. Here it comes, her eyes piercing holes. You can have my husband, she says to me, and the house. 
They are finally yours. In the morning, my mother waters all the flowers on the deck. I watch her between the different windows, see her body gently bent over the pots. She pours a little water from the jar, her hands shaking, moving between the pink petunias and yellow pansies, probably talking to them, saying good morning. The amaryllis is her favorite tower in the sun. This is a happy, fruitful interlude. And then breakfast and pills, it's all going fine. I put her makeup on in no hurry, her pink blush and lipstick, ebony eyebrows. My mother, still a beautiful woman whose eyes sparkle and shine and who smiles and who loves the temperature of my fingers on her skin as I massage in the cream. Then... When the sun goes down, or before, when it recedes just a little, pulls its arm back into its sleeve, dementia feels the tug and revs up, wilder than ever, climbs out of the cage of my mother's body as if the breezy morning was somebody else's business. Look at the beautiful flowers, her husband says, and she says, go to hell. I don't see anything beautiful here. I'm going to read one more, okay? Do you mind if I just read this one more? Because this kind of changes it a little bit. I can't end with go to hell. It's not going to get a whole lot better, but I'm not ending with go to hell. Dear Dementia, I'm supposing you are tired today after yesterday's howling firestorm. All of us are tired. The cell phones are tired and still hot. But maybe you don't get tired now that you have a body to protect you from dissipating, a big house in the country with lots of windows, a king-sized bed, a worried mind, and a soul embattled. Did you ever stop to think too much, too much, too much rage, destruction? Or is it all just more, more? Rage is the earth's voice, isn't it? One of the nine, the fire that feeds on itself. But what are words? What are thoughts, accusations, name-calling? Why are you talking all the time without pause? It isn't a response you want. You don't care if your if husband denies the charges and has the evidence to prove it. I've seen your face how flat and blank you become when the facts stand before you because he is no longer part of her, is he? He's a thing, an enemy, the one who will outlive you. Do you talk to mark your territory? The years of chemo stirred the pot long enough to make the poisonous mixture. She was an elementary school teacher, for heaven's sake, a principal, a mother, a grandmother. Was that part of it, a way to make yourself look good? Logic is wasted on you, I know, but I intend to find a way inside this nightmare, fly a plane into the eye where things are calm and I can have a look around. I intend to touch what you touch and put my smell on it, leave my prints. I intend, I intend to make you feel my presence. That was a little less creepy, right? Thank you so much, Mary and Kendra, for your wonderful poetry. Um, we'll now have um, some a question and answer period. Um, does anyone have a particular question they would like to start with? And um, I, I should add that. Um, I should add that um, this event is being recorded for podcast on our website. Um, so if you have a question, um, I can bring the mic to you, or you're welcome to come up to the mic. Um, um, well, I just wonder if you could talk a little about what 
prompted you to start a journal for writers over 50? The original story is um, that um, I was um, teaching a course in creative writing at the Waxter Center. And I was 26 years old, and um, I was just amazed by that room, the energy. These people were in their 80s and 90s, and they were so cool and wonderful. I was in love with all of them, and I was also teaching a course at the University of Baltimore at the time called The History of the Little, Ma Little, Little Magazine. So I was really under the belief that a magazine could change people's lives and thinking. That was an original, that was the original impulse to create a place for the older imagination to really be beautiful and not um, look like a hobby or look like a, you know, a, you know what I mean, a sort of the way that that senior living can look. I wanted it to be serious art. And, and then Mary got involved a couple years later um, or a year later, maybe. But it's like we did it at the beginning together. Well, I was old. <laughs> she was my old friend. <laughs> she was so old. No, no I, I was very excited about the way the magazine was done because originally the poems appeared on the page with a photograph of the writer. And... And here were these old faces, not just poems, it was prose, it was memoir and fiction. Um, but here were these old faces that young people might look at and just make the kind of assumptions that young people make. Um, but the writing was different. So. Well, thank you. Are there other questions? Okay. Mm -hmm. Let me yeah. bring the mic over to you. Um, do you have any advice for people who are young who want to write poetry? I'll write. Uh, yeah, um. Well, I just wish, uh, I mean, when I was younger, I wrote all the time. And then I started taking classes and became sort of hyper aware of how to write a good poem. And that kind of got in my way a little bit. Uh, so I would just write and write and read and read. And um, I also love, I don't know if you liked hearing the reading, but I love hearing poems out loud. I find that it's a very different experience. They go in differently and they take root. So I would, I would encourage you to go to readings too. This is a great series. You guys are amazing. You're so classy. I mean, I have to, I, you know, just really amazing the way you put this evening together. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Do you feel that anybody can read your poem as well as you do? Are you asking both of us? Yes. Do you mean read it to yourself or read it out loud? Read it to an audience. Oh. Well, it's different. I, 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 went, I went to a poetry reading a long time ago. In a, it was in an art gallery, and the reader was an, act, an actor, an actress, we used to say in the olden days. Um, and, <laughs> and the poems were really thrilling. I mean, they weren't written by her, obviously, but she, you know, she put them across. Um, uh, so that's one, that's one thing. Um, but I think when you hear the person, when you hear the person read who wrote it, you're going to hear things that you wouldn't get necessarily on the page. Um, I mean, the quality of a person's voice, for one thing, and how how they emphasize things. So um, it's just different. That was going to be my next question, and that is when you hear somebody else declaiming your poem, mm -hmm. do you ever find that they do it with the understanding that you put into the poem to begin with? Mm -hmm. Well, I haven't had that experience yet. <laughs> so I don't know. Have you? 
Not very often. I mean, don't you think everyone reads differently? And so um, if you read my poem out loud, it'll be a different poem. Mm -hmm. When I read my poems out loud, I discover things about them that I didn't know was there until I read it out loud. So it's a, you know, I've even discovered early on, I discovered that my poem, when I read poems out loud, I discovered that there was a lot more humor in them. Because I could, I could say the line in a way that, you know, I could sort of put it in a different place in my mouth and it would come alive differently. So I feel like even saying the poem is so different from the poem on the page. Hi, I have a question. Um, since you're both local poets, um, do you find Baltimore uh, working its way into your poems? And do you feel that Baltimore is a poetic place to live? <laughs> it's a great place to live. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, it's cheap. It's sort of cheap. <laughs> Cheaper than New York. Yeah, and the poets are friendly. And they're not competitive. <laughs> I think other cities, poets are more competitive. Um, Baltimore is such a wonderful neighborhoody town that um, I mean, it's been perfect for me. Yeah, well, Kendra, Kendra's first book was called Eager Street. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, when I was younger and I would give readings much more regularly, the audience has really helped me stay alive. You know, and, and it wasn't like an audience, but it was like the poems then had a life. They meant something different to me after I read them. And then that sort of spurred me on to write other poems. And um, I felt the respect of the audience and the support of the audience. I felt it was a very smart audience, very intelligent. You know? And so all those things mattered to me a lot. I meant more, I mean, that's interesting, but also I meant um, in terms of being inspirational to you or somehow finding its way into the content of, of your poetry. Well, that's, that's true more for your poems, yeah. I think, than mine. Yeah, definitely true for my poems, a lot of Baltimore poems. It means a lot to me to write about Baltimore because it connects me in my way. You know, I'm very stubborn about wanting to be, have a relationship with the city in the way I want to have it. And um, so when I write about it, I can have it. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question at all either. Interesting question. Do we have time for, we'll take two more questions. Um, it's weird in a microphone. <laughs> um, you two are very discerning editors. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the process while writing of turning off the editor, or do you work with the interior editing eye? Yeah, I, I had to learn. I had to learn how to turn it off because otherwise I couldn't do anything. Um, because that was such a. And I learned when I was. This was even when I was young and a young writer, I figured out that there was the censor who was out of control, <laughs> um, and then the free, the free one, the, person, the one who, was, who could do it, who could do something, get, at least get it going. So, um, uh, yeah, I, had to, I, have, I still, one of the ways I still do that is... Um, I'll, lots of times I'll just close my eyes. And for some reason, that does something. But I'll close my eyes and type and just keep going, just fast, 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 fast. And then I have all this stuff, and I can find, I can either find the poem in it or not. Um, uh, but at least, you know, it gets, and, and sometimes, that's, mm, that's the way, to, that's the way to, for me to find the way to something much better than I could ever plan um, with that editor sensor part of my brain. So, 
So I work around it, I guess, <laughs> and then bring it in later. Okay, and one more question. Uh, as <laughs> <laughs> it is, I'm really, um, I wanna, I, I've heard your name for years and years, uh, Mary Israel, and hmm. it's just finally great to put a face on you when it started. Uh, <laughs> since we're all a bit over 40 here, just a bit. Uh -huh. um, I love the fact that you wrote for the over 50 crowd, but remember, we're only over 40. Oh, Which no. really oh, no. Over 60. Uh, I've got my, uh, <laughs> we're over 40. 50's over 40, 60's over, over <laughs> But I've been stuck with my frog pond, if you know the uh, folk tale or the actress that wrote the story, right. And I just keep going back to that. And I always, before I read it years ago, loved frogs and turtles. <laughs> and you turned a turtle into everything, but you turned a baby into everything. I tried to write sounds for Clorinda when she did that thing here, and I just wound up with adjectives. And you even had a baby sound like a, a rabbi. Just <laughs> the, 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 whatever the <laughs> You're welcome. Cage with the mirror and the metaphor. That's the way to get out of the cage. <laughs> now, I gave you a look, and I think you saw it. Kind uh, of. Uh, I love it. Someone told me that you can't title haikus, and all the book says you can't title haikus. So I ripped off about a hundred bad ones, maybe two or three good ones, and I put titles in all of them. <laughs> and you said that's one thing I don't want you to do, and. Right away, I thought, what is it? I want to do it. <laughs> but was it limit yourself? Is that all you meant? Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. We're friends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I, I really, I was also on a morphine maintenance for, for 60 days when I did this 100 high I just found some of the pain. really suck. They really do. But my mama... She's been going five and a half now, so she got she got six weeks when her last fibrosis attack. She she had a glory board bigger than this. I mean, we all knew she was smart, but we didn't really know how. And the one thing when she went through the arthritis that almost killed her, the blood pressure that almost killed her, the then the double radical and then the pulmonary fibrosis that got her a year later, the one thing that she kept saying was, my mind, I need my mind. I'm smart, mm. and yet I can't help myself, and mm. I can't lose my mind, mm. because if I can't figure it out, they can, mm. and Catholics love to suffer. You know, they mm. all want to outdo the whatever, whatever, I won't do too much diatribe. So when you said go to hell, that was not a gloomy ending. Mm -hmm. My mother was like yeah. my grandmother. They said shit. They said, go to hell, and you didn't want to hear any of them, but when you did, you knew it was a good thing. Mm -hmm. So you finally got yeah. that part of my mind. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's well, thank you, everyone, for your questions, and uh, we'll and thank you for your your answers. And we will um, continue with the um, poetry readings. We have um, some poets from Passager to read, and then Marion and Kendra will each read again. So there are some passenger poets here and some people that want to participate in the open mic. Um, I think Jim, Jim Smith has came the farthest way, right? Sure. Yeah, do okay, you want to come on up? Um, my wife and I um, went to Rome for the first time about six weeks ago, and in five days we tried to see everything, and it nearly killed us. Um, we had lunch with Mara Egan. Uh, she's been my teacher for six years. I'm sure some of you know her. Uh, that was fun. But I made the uh, uh, pilgrimage down to the cemetery where Keats, Shelley, and Gregory Corso were buried. Uh, I love cemeteries, and that, that was a really nice one. So I wrote Oranges and Snails in the Protestant Cemetery, Rome. <clears throat> 
Behind the small Egyptian pyramid, among neat rows of dark green boxwoods, an orange tree has burst into bloom, announcing the turn of another spring. The fruit drops against the tombstones, but no weeping angel stirs his marble wings. No distinguished head blinks his bronze eyes. No sad cherub breaks into a heavenly smile. No Bella Signora climbs down off her beer, and no poet complains about his epitaph. In time, the oranges split open, spilling their sour nectar, attracting the snails that move imperceptibly, slow as another century, across a stone sacred to the memory of Anne Bithia, who died at home on 21 April 1844, aged 61 years, as mistress, friend, sister, daughter, mother, and wife, her conduct through life was most exemplary, and she never caused pain but by her death. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Darlene? Darlene Bookoff, right? Allure, you remind me of France, and if I cross the ocean, might I get to you? Black corduroy jacket, brown tobacco smoke, wool scarf, boot-cut jeans. Forty years out, I picture you still gaunt as Beckett, missed as Godot, quoting Artaud, and I'm again in your thrall. You remind me of wanting what was different, something gripping what was lost or never had. All thrives like sphagnum moss in the mire of bygone France. All the ways I imagined. You remind me how much I imagined. Steve Matanley. I'm going to read a poem from uh, a book that Passenger Books published very recently, mine called Night Book. <clears throat> These, um, the poems in the book were all written between about 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock in the morning on uh, consecutive nights over a period of about three months. And they're not titled. The raveled skeins of roots in the dark ground, the stars like flecks of gilt and tinsel. What does the night want of me? I light a match and the wind blows it out. I pray my heart does not fail. All I want is to see sunlight on a bedroom wall. The pine trees lean into the night. And I'd like to take the liberty to read another poem because <coughs> of the question about Baltimore in poems. This is a poem about <coughs> what's now called the Club Charles, but used to be um, the Wigwam Bar and Grill. And um, I spent many afternoons there. <coughs> it was described by John Waters as the scariest bar in Baltimore after he'd um, claimed, claimed at least to have seen a man bite um, uh, off the nose of another man. <clears throat> At this time in my life, I had no conception of what scary was or wasn't. It all sort of seemed like the same thing to me. This poem's called Grace. Grace is not a word I would ordinarily use to describe the men sitting at one o'clock in the afternoon in the yellowish gloom of the wigwam. Yet one day a man suddenly got up from his bar stool and lurched into a wobbly pirouette, dancing to the music in his head with something like grace, if only the strange grace of a three-legged dog. And when he sat down, he was able to meet his own gaze in the mirror behind the bar for a minute or two without feeling ashamed, which easily beat my time, 
Me, for whom the sound in my head was nothing I could dance to, not unless you think a moth inside a glowing lampshade is dancing. Thanks. to be here. Um, they said I could say a little story, and I will. Uh, when I was young, around 1964-ish time, you know, uh, 12 years old, we used to come here on Saturdays. We would take the bus down to um, the Pratt, um, and we would also go on the, uh, the, the uh, novelty shops and things like that, were on, with, which were on Park Avenue. It was a great time, but we always came basically for the Pratt. And the one thing I don't think exists anymore was up on the third floor, they had a science wing. And they had science projects of all kinds. And um, they had a large uh, glass uh, cylinder, and sparks went up at these long things. It looked like the, the uh, Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory. Um, and one thing that they had up there that was really neat was a telescope. And it was a huge brass telescope. And it was enclosed in a case. And on one end, there was stairs you could walk up, and you could look through the telescope, and it was actually focused on the Washington Monument across the street. And um, it was all you could see, though, was George Washington's head and his, his, his... And it brought to mind, I thought about this today, that we had learned at that time, or we were led to believe that Washington, um, you know, there was a halo around his head. And from coming to the Pratt, I learned it was actually a lightning rod sticking out of it. So uh, anyway, so if you, if you come to a library and you look around, you'll see some things. Um, so here's the poem. Sorry about that. Here we go. Um, I have a beautiful friend who has a beautiful house, and on the property is a beautiful tree, an old tree. So I thought about her, and I wrote this poem with her in her voice, so to speak, her speaking. Uh, it's called The House and the Tree. She said, amongst the easy peel figs, you sit my house. Your random, uncut, basaltic stones puzzled into sanctuary by a magician's floating trowel and shaded by the jolly grandfather tree that tells plump and bubble-burly tales of cat's eyes prowling the slipped cotton covers of lovers undone in the doing. Hill House, you are not always convenient, and some days the sun does not kiss your arch windows. But see here, lucky house, you are for me, and we are hereby forgiven all flaws and joined as brothers and sisters for as long as we be. So come now, sit here in Tree's dappled easy chair and share a cup of fresh brewed life before it grows cold. Thank you. I'm trying to see if there is an... Rosme, is that you? No, you're not Rosme, huh? Yeah. You're Rosme, right? I mean, I know you from your picture in Passenger. Are you going to come up and read? Do you want to read? Well, this is uh, Rosemary Taylor, and we've published her a few times, right? And it's just such a pleasure to to meet you. I I mean, I've seen you're like a movie star in our screen, in our computer. I mean, look at Sarah Lynn over there. We know you, but here you are in the flesh. So (laughs) this is Rosemary Taylor, everyone. (laughs) Thank you for coming. very new, and this is why I, I don't know anybody here, because uh, I'm just very new, and here I am. So I will, just in case any of you would want to get in touch with me, and I have no idea why you would want, <laughs> uh, I thought I, I would give you my address. So this is my address. I live on a street of small verses. Mostly one-story verses, 
shingled in silver or gray or green, red brick words, white-trimmed clean lines, and Virginia Creeper meandering on legible chimneys. Perhaps if you explore the pentameters of our royal rhyme city stanzas, you may find my street with its linden songs just coming into leaf amongst neatly hedged heroic couplets and hope's heels tapping teeteringly by on the pavement. That's my address. That's my address. thinking I, it would, I'd like to read a poem by uh, some, someone who, a woman named Virginia Anderson who is um, 91 years old and just um, won the Passager Poetry Contest, the annual contest. So we're going to publish um, five of her po- four of her poems and a, basically a, mon- a monologue uh, of her of her talking about herself. But this, this is a poem that we published in a Burning Bright, which is an anthology of uh, selected poems and memoir pieces and short stories from 21 years of Passenger. Um, And it's called Adventures of an Old Woman. And she has a wonderful voice and a wonderful laugh. And your question about whether somebody else can read that poem as well as the writer, the answer is no. But here it is. Adventures of an Old Woman. He was in the alley, walking past me as I entered my yard. Hello, Granny, he said. He did not stop walking, did not turn to smile. Hello, I said. He continued walking, had no more good times to offer. He was a show-off. So I put a spell on him, which was a bit of showing off on my part. I wasn't sure it was going to work until his feet faded, hung in the air. He didn't cry out in pain, didn't seem to be uncomfortable. Do you read fairy tales, I asked. He made no sound, but shook his head. Possibly he didn't feel like speaking to me anymore. I could only see the part of him that was turned away. Read them, I said. Fairy tales in all languages teach you to be careful about meeting old women on the road. (laughs) He did not respond. (laughs) You never know what's inside an old woman, I said. We have all those years, you know, to develop new skills. He wiggled a bit, but without his feet, he really couldn't go free. I wondered if the word granny was some kind of lump he'd had to swallow. But I was tired of them. I don't much like to use spells. They are old-fashioned. I gave him his feet, and he was gone. (laughs) Yeah, and that's Virginia Anderson, 91, and still at it. Um, I'll read one more poem, too, okay? Um, This poem is not nearly as wild and funny, but um, this woman is 92. And this is, um, her name is Jean Connor. And we published her, she won the contest uh, almost 10 years ago. And um, 
several years later we started thinking, I wonder if Jean Connor is still around, might have a book, because we love these five poems so much. And we called her, wrote to her, and asked her if she would just send us all her poems. Could we just have all your poems? We didn't want her to put it together in a book. We wanted to do that. So she sent us everything, and um, she put it together in a book, though. She's a librarian. She doesn't listen. Um, but she put, it, she put it together in a wonderful book that then we changed. And um, this poem, I mean, this, this book was the beginning of the press, um, Passenger Books, because we thought a magazine reaches a certain audience. A book has a different life, a very different life from a magazine. And that way, Jean's poems can reach a much larger audience. And in fact, they did. When the book was published, uh, it sold out in three months. It's in, it was in its second printing in three months. She was an extraordinary, is an extraordinary woman, still writing at 92. Felt her life changed when that book came out because suddenly she was sort of a public person and she was being interviewed and she had to answer questions about how she wrote. She had to think about how she wrote. Everything... She said it was like getting an education all over again, having to discover who she was by, by these questions. Yeah. yeah and she, and we're publishing her again in this upcoming issue. She's, she was honorable mention. So yeah. yeah. That's right. So she's our queen. She's our queen, and she, when this poem I'm going to read you, when we got this poem, we thought this is a poem we've been looking for all these years publishing. It said something about being old. That was new. Of some renown. For some time now, I have lived anonymously. No one appears to think it odd. They think the old are, well, what they seem. Yet see that egret at the marsh's edge, solitary, still, mere presence, that stillness. His silence is a lie. In his own pond, he is of some renown, a stalker, a catcher of fish. Watch him. (laughs) Thank you so much. Mary, Kendra, Passenger Poets, this has been a a really, really special evening. Um, You know, every night I know you say that really hearing poetry, when I go home I feel like I've gone into, um, I really have entered into another time frame or time zone. And the sounds and the words, it infiltrates you in a different way than reading it. And this has really been a very, very special evening. And thank you all so much for coming participating, reading, and for the gift that, that you've given everyone here. Can't say enough. Um, and also, not to forget, there, Mary and Kendra's and Passenger Books are available on the back table for sale if anyone would like to purchase them. Um, there's also, back on that table back there, some evaluation forms for the event that you know, we would love if you, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to give us a comment or two. Um, that's always very helpful. And um, we also have a sign-up sheet if you would like to receive emails about any upcoming, upcoming poetry events, workshops, and it would just be restricted to poetry events. We won't hit you on everything that's, that's coming down the pike. And, um, but so, you know, if you'd like to get, come to more programs and any workshops that we might be having, um, please feel free to sign up back there and then we can email you. Um, and again, thank you everyone for coming, reading, and sharing the evening with us. Thank you.